All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. You know, I, I, went, I had a stage in my life where I preferred warmer climates. Um, you know, and it was quite a while. It was until I went to Korea, I really preferred living in warmer climates. Like Alabama, Florida didn't bother me at all. Um, but it was, I think Korea kind of, I was like, okay, maybe I can do cooler temperatures. And I think it was Afghanistan round two that was just like, okay, nope, I am fucking over this shit. Gandhar <laughs> like, <laughs> is warm. It's dude. hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Terribly hot. Well, and on like on my second deployment, I did something I didn't even have to do on my first deployment. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this. I had to live for essentially a full month in Afghanistan without a- AC in Western Afghanistan in Farah and Herat, and it was awful. It was so horrifically hot, and I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I've I have never been so uncomfortable in my entire life. Like we would go and fly. And then we'd come back and everybody would just strip down to their underwear and like lay on a cot. And like you, you just try not to move. Yeah. That's the only way to stay like maintain your body temperature. If you move like one, you burn like a single calorie and like your body temperature rises 10 degrees. <laughs> so when was... were you there? Around like May, June? August. Oh my God. That's August. Warm. August yeah. of 2017. And then again in uh, September, October of 2017. But the August trip was the bad one. That's when we, we, it took us about a week just to get the AC working. And when it did work, it was just like. Not good. Not good. great. Yeah. So we just like, but our aircraft air conditioning works phenomenally. <laughs> so we just made sure we flew a lot more. <laughs> For sure. The Apache, the Apache is the only uh, American helicopter that has an air conditioning system. Really? So. The rest of them, you get that elevation. Air cool, air temperatures cool off. <laughs> not really. Not when the, not when it's sunny and it's blasting through a windscreen. Yeah, that's true. Um, a lot of like the the other helicopters that don't have AC, what they'll do is like if they're flying in trim, which means like aerodynamically into the wind. There's mm-hmm. no where, there's no airflow for the aircraft. So oh, what they do winter. is they'll kick it out a little bit. So they'll just put a this kind of like skirt sideways a little bit, so that wind will go in through the doors and that's yeah. how they cool it off <laughs> but yeah it's miser it's miserable to fly in a helicopter that has no ac in afghanistan mm. yeah and it's only like 10 percent of the reason why i chose to fly the apache 10 <laughs> percent <laughs> there is only 10 percent but. So what's the difference between the ha- regular cuz I've been to regular helicopters but not apache Apache is more fighter. Basically. It's it yeah, it's a gunship. So we don't carry passengers at all. It's just two pilots and all of the rockets and missiles and guns and stuff like that. So 
um, you know, the aircraft that you've you've been on before would be like you know Chinooks and Blackhawks, and I know you've got a good Chinook story to tell us later. Um, but they carry passengers, uh, and then the Apaches just were just there to to fuck shit up, basically. Oh wow, nice. But it's a good place for an intro. We are sitting here with Sarah. Sarah is joining us from an undisclosed location because we are, and, we, and her name is also not actually Sarah, um, because, uh, and Sarah is joining us because Sarah was a interpreter. Uh, she's an American citizen who was working in Afghanistan as an interpreter during the war on terror. Uh, and so Sarah, we thank you for joining us, um, for coming on the podcast and giving us a very, very unique viewpoint uh, into, into Panjway. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a different format to the show today because usually we ask our guests to give us a good about a, a lot of their background in their family history or why they joined the, the the military. And for one, you're not in the military; you were a civilian. Uh, and two, um, we don't want to go too far down that road rabbit hole because uh, you do have a uh, family still in Afghanistan, uh, and we want to do everything we can to protect your identity and and theirs. Um, so we'll have a little bit more of a fluid conversation. And, uh, if we ever say anything that we shouldn't say, we power of editing, I can take it out. So I guess one place where we can start is if you could tell us a little bit about what you did, uh, with the United States military. Um, I worked with the mother, um, with the DOD, um, uh, working with different branch of the military. Um, I worked with the Marines, uh, special forces, um, uh, um, airborne, 82nd airborne, um, fort ID, um, uh, army and yeah, that's about, and then Navy SEALs for like a couple of weeks hmm. in okay. Kandahar. How, how, how'd you like working with the SEALs? Um, it was very different. Different good, different bad. <laughs> different uh, in in a way. Um, both. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, um, let's say both. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that's a, a wide range of units. But uh, so, like, what was your primary like responsibility in terms of? Did you work on FET teams, or were you working with like a command structure? I mean, what kind of people did you work with in, as a Terp? Uh, when I signed up uh, and I landed in um, uh, Bagram, mm-hmm. after that, they sent me to Hellman working with the female engagement team, mm-hmm. Marines, uh, for three months. I worked there. After that, I got transferred to Herat, Campstone, mm-hmm. uh, working with the 82nd Airborne. Um, I worked at Campstone for a year. Uh, with the medcap, medevac uh, teams, med- mostly medical stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah. So most of your your time uh, as an interpreter in Afghanistan was in in the west or the south, right? Yes, south. Yeah, western. And my second deployment was Kandahar. Yep. Okay. Now, so which which languages do you speak? I speak speak four languages five with english (laughs) which two of them are from afghanistan pashtu and dari are from afghanistan Mm. 
What, what else do you speak? <laughs> I speak uh, Urdu, which is okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Urdu and uh, Punjabi. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's that's quite the skill set. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the Dari and the Pashto make sense growing up in Afghanistan. I mean, I don't I don't think you can get away with or unless you just stay in your village your entire life, only knowing one language in Afghanistan when they have like what seven. Yes, they have quite a few, uh, quite a few um, languages. Hmm. Yeah. And what's what's some of like the the functional differences between like Dari and Pashto? Um, it's just the dialect is different, and also I think there not I think um, there's like a couple of alphabet that's uh, added to Pashto alphabet, hmm. and the dialect is totally different. But the writing style is the same writing style, added hmm. a couple of um, alphabet. They're they're both written in Arabic, right? Uh, yes, it's um, it's Arf- um, Arabic alphabet, right? Mm. Yeah, but nothing. That's what's fascinating me about Pashto is it's like it's Arabic alphabet, but it sounds nothing, nothing like alike. Arabic. Totally, dis- yeah. totally dissimilar. Except for like they'll steal words here and there. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> yes, we do exchange words with the Arabic here and there, as you said, but it's very different. Even when we. Uh, try to um, pronounce sometimes it's different right and, um, Arabic pronunciation is very different mm-hmm. and so like when you're because obviously Afghanistan is not only a multitude of languages but they're a multitude of tribes and dialects I mean did you ever run into situations where like your functional knowledge of even Pashto like wasn't the same as the area you were working in? Definitely, yes. There were there were a couple times that uh, we were on missions, and um, I was having a hard time understanding. Hmm. But the good part was that I had uh, we had a uh, local interpreter with okay. us, so he would assist uh, with the translation and things. Hmm. Yeah. Now. Kind of given some of the the cultural issues associated with being a female and then being an interpreter, was there always also a male interpreter with you, or were you ever the primary interpreter on the ground? Um, there has been times that they were. Uh, we did have shortage of male interpreters. There's mm-hmm. always was shortage of interpreters in Afghanistan, as you guys yep. know very well. Uh, we did have shortage uh, just because uh, our male interpreter got hurt or he was home for a vacation. So I was basically translating for two teams at the same time for men and the women that I used to work right. with. Now, did that cause problems in some of the, the villages where you know you had a female that was interpreting for you know male like elders and stuff like that did was that ever an issue um in modern areas modern cities such as uh herat and shindan and farah places like that it wasn't an issue um right they respected us very much so and they treated us just like uh their daughters uh but um in helmand and kandahar where the tribes are um different mm, right. they're more pashto speaker and they're very um uh, strict uh, with their women. Uh, it was hard. It was very um, difficult for me to um, do my job, just because they, the 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 men wouldn't open up to speak to to me or to mm-hmm. the team, because they yeah. would think uh, that uh, I'm I'm a woman and I'm supposed to be at home, sitting at home. Not what am I doing here, working? Mm-hmm. 
Right. And I imagine, you know, e- even I, I know you, you, you wore a hijab and you did your best to try and alleviate some of those local concerns, but there's no way that they're oblivious. Like, I'm, I'm sure that only goes so far in certain villages. Yes. And the thing about wearing a scarf, uh, a headscarf, it, it is kind of uh, giving them the, um, the respect of, okay, you're Muslim and we're supposed to be, uh, you know, wearing scarf with female, even uh, female uh, soldiers did wear scarves. Um, but we, us wearing um, military um, gear and military right. um, outfit was not okay. Uh, we were right. supposed to wear full-on um, hijab. Mm, right. Yeah. And I'm sure in some of the villages you went to, they would have liked to see you in a full burqa too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in some villages, that's true. But um, most of the time, like some of them were very intrigued by the way uh, we were as women. Uh mm. Like it, it depends, it varied from one person to another person's perspective because most of the time uh, we would talk to um, the commander. For example, we, we caught this guy and who's the commander of the Taliban. And during the interrogation, what we would ask me to marry him <laughs> and be his fourth or seventh wife. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, what was your response? <laughs> she said yes Luke. Yeah, obviously she said yes <laughs> oh, and i would say well if i marry you uh you know quote unquote you will just you know just you know sit me at home and have me have kids and not let me do what I'm doing right now. Uh-huh. And he would be like, oh, no, I'll just keep you as like this princess in a big cage and nice, cute cage and put you up there <laughs> and sit you well, somewhere. You, when you sell it like that, who doesn't want to live yeah, in a cute cage? Sounds great. <laughs> and yeah, he would say, you're not made for this work and you're supposed to be at home like a princess in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> oh man wow that's pretty interesting for sure uh, so in your um in your kind of like day-to-day work how often did you talk to women and like what kind of conversations did those conversations like the, the your conversations with women lead to like did you lead to intelligence or was it just kind of a general feeling for how everybody's doing i mean what what were those interactions like that's a very good question because I I get asked a lot of this question. Yeah. Um, our our basically our mission was to collect intelligence. Yeah. And then second was to just uh, give out uh, food or milk for the children um, that were malnourished, and also mm. medication for people who are sick. Um, so our primary target was to collect intel. Mm. That's that was our thing. So, uh, as we were giving out medication or treating them, we'd always ask questions about um, who is new to this village and what's going on, and mm. um, yeah, just collecting intel. So, what kind of like, did you guys receive training and how to kind of cultivate those questions and how to steer conversations towards revealing particular intelligence, like facts, I guess, or was it just something that you just picked up as you got into the job uh we did get training for for a month um mm-hmm. in uh, baltimore but it wasn't enough training 
Yeah. So at first, uh, I was kind of a rookie when I got to the job. I didn't know much. But uh, as I kept on working with the uh, with the teams and before we were heading out, they would give us uh, kind of a training or uh, what do you call it? Uh, briefings. Mm-hmm. And during the briefings, they would tell us how to uh, ne- negotiate and speak and uh, ask questions in different ways. Hmm. How often did, so how often did that lead to... Uh, really good intelligence, like especially from talking to women. Most of the most of the time, I would say eighty percent of the time, it was accurate. Whatever we, we used to collect, mm. um, other twenty percent was uh, not as successful as because uh, the people of the village were very united with the Taliban. Mm. Yeah. So dependent on their villages. Um, did you ever get the idea that, that that these women were true believers in that, like they actually st- like stood with the Taliban, or did, was it more of like out of fear thing? Like I'm going to toe the company line so that you know I don't get my head cut off, kind of thing. I think they were, it was both the combination of both. Um, most women were very well, as you know, uh, women are very soft. You know, they have they have a soft heart and soft spot. And when you meet them, they try to be as helpful as they can. But the the thing is that they were feared uh, uh, for their uh, children's life, uh, husband's life. So uh, that's why they were not uh, they're trying to protect their own families. Yeah. Other than that, Afghan women are very resilient and they, you know, they're very true and honest. uh, And they're simple, too, especially in the villages. They're very simple. Um, you right. can tell them anything and they will believe it, but they had to protect their families. And did they, uh, did you ever get anything from the women about like disapproval, but what, what you were doing? I mean, obviously we talked about earlier, the men expressed disapproval, but did the women ever express disapproval or did they ever ask you about what you were doing and how you did it or why you were doing it? Yes. Yes. Of course. Women would ask that all the time in, um, they did not ask me in a uh, objective ways. They would ask me in a very uh, int- like interested that w- what people like me or women like me were doing in the military, working mm. with the foreigners. Um, they want to be. They wanted to be someone like me, uh, or their daughters to be someone like me, educated, um, being in different country and and all that but uh, unfortunately they 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 couldn't it's it's hard for them and yeah uh, and most of the time i would feel myself um when i used to go on missions and come back uh to the base i would feel myself very lucky to be who i am and um seeing that pain in their eyes was not easy for me to uh to uh to deal with because they want to be free. They want to be educated. They want to do things on their own. They want to be, um, you know, world travelers and do things, make changes, mm-hmm. but they can't because yeah. of the oppression. Mm. And they're very suppressed by yeah. their men. I feel like um, that was one of my biggest takeaways from my experience in Afghanistan was like the, the hope for the country from, and from my two cents was with the girls and the women. Cause like that, that was where the potential for some serious change could have, could have happened, you know? 
And so I've, I've always carried that forward, like in my day to day, even today, like I was thinking about it and my heart kind of breaks thinking about these like beautiful Afghan girls who, yeah, especially out in Panjway where there's no opportunity for, for them to do anything other than stay at home. Um, it's just, that was always like my thing. I, I came away from my experience with a, with a determination to, um, I guess, double down on advocacy for for girls having access to things like education and opportunity because it was you know that was that was a a heartbreaking thing to see for me as an outsider coming in so i would imagine for you being afghan it was even more heartbreaking to see that well i mean the thing is you know those when we've said it before we talked about it last week with general abrams no one's coming to save the girls of panjway yeah you know, if you're if you're a Pash, if you're a girl born into a Pashto tribe, that is, there's probably not a worse like lifestyle to be born into in in the civilized world right now. Maybe there is. I don't know. It's, I think that is. Yeah, I mean, it's what were some of the challenges that you you observed when you went into some of those villages for those girls? I mean, they're, they're being married off pretty young, were they not? Yes, very young, at age of nine and up. Yeah, it started. Um, I read somewhere, according to Geneva Convention survey or whatever they did, I think Afghanistan, I did read that, that Afghanistan is the most poorest and backward country in the whole world right now. Uh, in, in case of uh, education, um, facilities like uh, going to a doctor, uh, food, of course, um, places that they live that are like, I- I'm sure you saw those places close to Panjway, like there's nothing around them. And there's like a village with a couple of houses and they're all mud huts. And I don't think uh, in any country in the world, we have situation like that. Even in Africa, there are places that they can go, their facilities, they can go see a doctor, do things, even if they're very poor, but at the mm-hmm. same time, they do have uh, services, they do have education, um, right, and uh, they have schools. But in Afghanistan, they, there's no such thing. Hmm. Well, I mean, in, in Africa, I mean, there's a widespread support for children going to school. And in Afghanistan, it's poor, not all of Afghanistan, but in you know the Pashto regions of Afghanistan, there's not a whole lot of support for for girl for little girls going to school. That's true. It's very sad. Now that the Taliban closing the uh, school on any city everywhere, it's just heartbreaking. Like you see, the girls are crying. Social media. When I check social media, and and I see girls are always crying because they want to go to school. Hmm. And it's just sad. It's very sad. Now, when when was the last time you were in Afghanistan before you came back to be an interpreter? Six years old. When you were six years old? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, so that's, you know, so far ago. I mean, did you even remember what it was like when you were there as a six-year-old? I mean. No. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I wouldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. i tell you what I was doing when I was six years old. <laughs> And what, what was it like to watch Afghanistan kind of change over the course, even just a, the few years that you were there? Um, 
like from a Kabul area and from modern cities uh, that I used to hear and see things uh, on the media or social media or, you know, hear it from people. Um, I was very happy for the people that were in these big cities, the urban cities. There were like schools, their fashion, their malls, there's, you know, things you know, like amusement parks, they're like bookstores, cafe, internet cafes. I was very happy that, okay, Afghanistan's changing, like for the past 40 years, it has gone through so much. And then now it's changing for, especially for a few, like five, six years ago, like it was kind of getting to the point that people were getting stable, more educated. Um, people were traveling back and forth to different countries. Everything was just okay and uh different countries would provide visa for afghans to go abroad to study and um or visit with their families and stuff but um it was it was pleasant it was a very pleasant uh experience for me and my family um but once uh, we left uh, once americans left uh, everything changed for the worst, not for the better. Yeah, and I think that was like <clears throat> our experience on the ground in 2012, being in the far-flung reaches of Afghanistan. It was really hard for us in that like day-to-day grind to see the the positive impact of uh, like us being out there in the nether regions. Uh, it was hard to see or to conceptualize the positive impact happening in places like Kabul. I feel like, you know, now with some time and some wisdom, it's, it's like, uh, you know, well, we've always said it was, it was not a waste, right? It was worth it. That's kind of been our, our motto for veterans because people in Kabul got to live, at, you know, real lives for a good chunk of time and people in other more modern cities got to live real lives. So there's a, there's a lot of reward in that, uh, knowing that, you know, our small little piece that we tried to contribute to was able to allow people elsewhere to live and have access to things that they you know they wouldn't have had access to otherwise definitely even uh in the villages that we were uh we were making differences like people used to uh get to know things like such as computer phone or uh, you know high-tech stuff um uh but now it's just it's not it's going backwards basically yeah. uh i remember there was a time i was working in uh, pasab um i know even there uh we had like veterinaries came in and you know military vets and um veterinaries veterinarian mm-hmm. uh they used to come and uh, educate people about their um uh livestocks and uh they were getting used to uh, these classes and information uh, about livestock about how to do gardening about how to do uh, you know different things uh, i don't think they'll get that yeah they won't have any opportunity opportunities to get all of those information yeah and especially in in those rural areas i mean uh, I, I think, you know, depending on the success of the NRF, NRF's uh, spring campaign, um, 
you know, I think Kabul could still see some of the residual effects of you know, us introducing mod- modernity back to Afghanistan. Um, just because, I mean, the Taliban won't shut off the cell towers and they haven't shut off the internet. They may try to control it, but they, you know, the cat's out of the bag at this point. You know, people can access the internet. Um, but places like, you know, Zari, Panjway, you know, there's not going to be any programs like that there. They can lock that down and put it all back under strict um, strict Islamic law and, you know, just start smashing solar panels and cell phones and no one's going to be able to ever, ever do anything about it. But That's uh, very true. But maybe maybe there's a glimmer of hope for like northern Afghanistan and, and Kabul. The, maybe the NRF can take it back and there's there will be a, a piece of Afghanistan that can still reside in the modern era. We'll see. I'm, I'm pulling for you. <laughs> pulling for you guys. Go, go fuck them up. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yep. Yeah. So what What about uh, working with, like, the Americans? I mean, we talked briefly about how the SEALs was, like, a okay experience, <laughs> I guess. Um, but what, what was uh, what was it like, you know, working with the, with the various American units? Very interesting and very different. Um, you get to work with so many different personalities, so many yeah. different um, teams that they have their own ways and you have to kind of get used to it or adjust yourself. Um, it's very challenging. Um, it's not easy uh, to work as you military men <laughs> are very uh, <laughs> particular about your uh, missions or your thought process or your trainings. Um, it was difficult at the beginning uh, to get adjusted. But um, throughout my experience, even now when I sit back and I think about myself and how I changed as a person, is that I try to accept, I try to adapt this personality to, to, uh, I try to adapt quickly Mm. um, just to uh, make things work, even in in daily life, like day-to-day life here. Um, I've changed. Before that, I wasn't like that. I was in a specific way and I had my own ways and, and that's it. No one could do tell me anything about what to do or how to do things differently. Um, but working with the military, with different teams, with uh, different um, branches, um, you have to have this pers- this um, uh, per- personality that can adapt things and change um, for the better, of course. To change mm-hmm. for the better and um, take the 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 worst less the worst as a lesson. Hmm. Um, did you ever? Because obviously there's there's different levels of interpreters within American units, and um, as an American citizen, I'm sure that yeah, and that's why you spent a lot more time with like the special operations units. Um, did you feel that you were treated significantly better because you were an American citizen than some of the local terps? I feel like I was treated equally to the local interpreters. Um, the teams really did stand out, stand up for the local interpreters because they, their life were more in danger that, than it was for me because I was um, uh, protected 
uh, in so many ways because I'm a female, first of all, second, I am from the States and I'm in between the, the whole uh, American environment team. Mm-hmm. But the um, Afghan interpreters that, are, that were local, they had uh, more uh, chances of getting hurt even by the uh, Afghan military uh, mm-hmm. or the Afghan civilian when they go on missions. So the term the uh, green on blue something, mm-hmm. uh, it might have happened with a lot of interpreters when they uh, with local interpreters, like if 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 the Afghan commander the A N A commander doesn't like what interpreter is saying, he might get shot at or get killed or, or he slapped or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did have the advantage of uh, being protected and not dealing with the Afghan military as much. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. The the Americans that you worked with, uh, let's just, we will talk about the SF guys later, but uh, like the conventional units, did you find yourself mostly spending time with like the commanders um, or were you going out on patrol more? Were you listening and on the radio more? What, how did the, how, what was the best way that they used you? Um, I did all of them together. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I would be at a talk or I'd be like on the tower listening or when we're on a patrol, I'm just listening to the radio uh, or when we're on a foot patrol, I have to, you know, be very cautious and listen to what people are saying around us in the villages or uh, inside someone's house. So you have to be very cautious and mm-hmm. kind of have like six cents ready, uh, like listen, uh, you know, translating, talking while you're listening to your, you know, the vibes around you or what that person's saying, what this person's saying. So you have to have like all your conscious, like spread out throughout in a mud hat or in a, in a room. Um, or uh, if you're, you know, I'm listening uh, to a radio telecom and I have to type what they're saying. Uh, in Pashto, or or uh, they're saying in Pashto, I have to write it in in English. Um, or if we were out listening to the mm, to the uh, radio, I have to you know quickly translate and then listen quickly translate and listen quickly. Like it was like all over. Like I, I, there was times that we we were short we were short of interpreters, and I had to go out at like three in the morning with the guys only. It would be only me. Mm-hmm. There was an incident that uh, we went on a um, on a uh, patrol at three in the morning, and uh, because we, uh, we I couldn't hear anything inside the Humvee because uh, I had the radio with me, the to- uh, the yeah the, the radio with me, and they had to like kind of put me on top of the Humvee and me listening, and all of a sudden I'm I'm hearing that the guy is saying yeah their interpreters is uh, like on the radio and she's sitting on top of the Humvee. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Get out! Get down! So I was like, oh, there's no way. There's no way I'm sitting here while I'm gonna get a sniper or something right in my neck or somewhere. So I. <laughs> It's so funny because the Humvee was like kind of like the the door was open because the gunner was standing right next to me, mm-hmm. so I jumped inside the Humvee. I was like, I'm no no way I'm standing over there or sitting outside by myself. <laughs> uh, I feel like uh, that's the, that's the thing, right, about being an interpreter is like, yeah, you know, you're you're out there with us, like in the thick in the shit, basically. <laughs> 
and uh, but you've got no <laughs> means of defending yourself outside of what we were able to provide. You know, you're not carrying a weapon or whatever. So, like, what do you remember the first time you got shot at? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How'd, um, that, how'd that story go? Um, to be honest with you, we got we okay. We started in a firefight and. Uh, they kind of pulled me and put me in the uh, someone I think for a Charlie guy. Uh, he he you know grabbed his uh, sniper, and I kind of quickly helped him with the sniper to get it from the Humvee. And then he kind of grabbed me and, and and put me inside the the Humvee while we were getting shot at. So I'm just sitting there la 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 la, and I had a book with me. Okay, and it was a, <laughs> the book was Daniel Steele's book. Okay, oh really? I love her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm just like reading the book and we get a shot at. <laughs> yeah. Too good. Okay. The, dr- the driver is just sitting there and like, she, you know, he's waiting for uh, the guys to come back so we can, you know, leave because mm-hmm. we're about to leave. Uh, we got shot at an pl- uh, pl- uh, area that was like a um, residential area. So we couldn't shoot back mm. at them. Oh. So, um, yeah, and when we came back, they were all making fun of me that, oh, it didn't really matter for Sarah. She was just like reading her book, Daniel Seal, and did not care about getting shot at. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's, some, that's like, some real gangster shit. That you is you, gangster. Went, you went like, straight to being like a, an expert when you yeah. first firefight. Yeah, that was my first firefight. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like that's like a, that's a very Afghan move right there for sure. Yeah. That's like, I'm just going to read my book while this is going on. It's all good. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. That is pretty funny. It's funny. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely read books in combat, but I don't think I've ever read a book while I was being shot at. That usually <laughs> convinced me. It's like, oh, I guess I should put this away and do my job. <laughs> yeah. Did you yeah, ever have no. any uh, moments where you got really frustrated with your like? Did you did you ever feel like you needed or wanted to like you know grab a gun and get into it if you had to or were you always pretty cool with just like stepping aside letting everybody do the work and you getting the Humvee or whatever and reading a book and reading a book. No, I really did uh, wanted to uh, get in there and shoot back and. Uh, do the things that guys were doing, like, mm-hmm. you know, badass things. Um, although there's once I tried it, um, but the lieutenant uh, of the team did not let me. He pulled me back. He grabbed me. He pulled me Boo. back. He's like, you can't do that. <laughs> I didn't have a gun with me. <laughs> yeah, he didn't let me. He said, no, you can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> you were too valuable of an asset, I would imagine. Yep. To yeah. be out there slinging lead, getting shot. <laughs> I can only think of one time we gave our terp, like, well, we had the different level terps. So sometimes, like, if a cat A terp went out, he could carry a gun. But when it was just our normal terps, I only remember one time giving a guy a gun, and that's because it was like, <laughs> we have nobody left. <laughs> I hope you know how to use this gun. <laughs> and the one I gave to him didn't work anyway, because it had been blown up. <laughs> but I felt better that he was at least carrying it. He was carrying one, yeah. Oh my god. That's crazy. <laughs> there was one time um, our base got attacked in uh, Maiwand. 
and um, no one was up. So I got up because I heard the shots. I got up and um, the Charlie guy got up too. So he said, Sarah, did you hear that? I said, yes, I did. Let's go. So I'm like uh, carrying his gun like, and he's like walking in front of me. So we're just going to the tower and see what's going on to the A&A side. And it just, you know, just like that, he just gave me his gun and he's like, you got my back, right? I said, I got your back. Just go do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> and he went up there, you know, through fl- flares and everything and nothing happened. So mm. it was just a cowardly attack. Yeah, but yeah, that was a, a night that I remember. And we, <laughs> when we came back, everyone's still sleeping. <laughs> like that did not happen. <laughs> Or were they sleeping or were they reading books? <laughs> yeah, they took a, took a textbook sample from yeah. here. It's like, don't worry, got this. I'm going to knock out a couple chapters. Yeah. Oh, man. You uh, you said like the Charlie guy. Do you mean like the 18 Charlie, like SF guys yeah. you're working with? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So what was that experience like, like working with SF? It was very intense. Um it was intense working with the Fort ID and 82nd born, of course, airborne. Mm-hmm. But um, I think uh, SF and um, SEALs were very intense. Work, like, What was the biggest differences you saw working with SF versus conventional forces and how they used you as an interpreter? With the SF, I was just exposed to everything and anything really? that war has to offer. Like, like I was in the middle of the war. I was like right at front line. But working with the other uh, uh, units, like 82nd or Fort ID, uh, we were more uh, um, shield because we already had people up front. Mm-hmm. And all we did was, uh, well, the team that I work with, uh, all we did was, you know, do medevac or um, medcaps missions and uh yeah, stuff like that, um, or collect and tell, or mm-hmm. go from one base to smaller bases, from the smaller bases to a different smaller bases. Um, yeah, with the special forces, I was right, right in the middle of everything, and I saw everything. And till today, those things kind of haunt me because I wasn't ready and I wasn't trained to see those things, mm-hmm. um, like people getting shot at, people getting blown up by an IDs, like six, seven people at the same time would just show up like in front of us with, uh, you know, losing, lost limbs. Mm-hmm. Or whenever we are on missions, we get a shot at, um, or someone just blew up right in front of me. That's mm-hmm. like ANA or ALP, uh, Afghan local police. Um, so yeah, it was more intense working with uh, special forces. And that kind of changed me as a person as well. Um, it just gave me a different perspective uh, about war. Because before that, I thought war was something totally simple and easy and it's not as hardcore. Mm. But I guess it just, you know, mat- it matures you up and it just makes you a whole person. When you see those things and you value life now. Mm. Well, we, we always like to say that, you know, war, like individual experiences may vary. Um, you know, and even just, you know, 
the difference between being an interpreter in one area and interpreting a different area or conventional forces versus special operations forces. The same thing applies to us. I mean, there's, I know guys that were, do the same job we do who went on deployments and never saw anything, you know, or they spent their whole time on the big base. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how that, uh, how your experience varied going between the two, the two different types of units. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, I mean, you, honestly, you had opportunities that we would never have you know, to, to see multiple different types of units in a single rotation. I mean, for us, it's like luck of the draw. Like, you got what you got, and it ain't going to change. Right. You guys were attached to a special forces, though, right? No. No, we were, okay. we were, uh, we had our own base. Uh, we were just, we were normal, just normal infantry guys sitting on spur one guard, trying not to get blown up. Okay. That place is very dangerous. Yeah, is dangerous. Did you ever spend any time out there? Uh, yeah, I I actually traveled through there. I was there okay. for a couple hours, and then we traveled through there. Okay, what was yeah. that like? Um, very similar to Gorak. Gorak hmm. was similar to that, and Jare, mm-hmm. very similar. They're all the same. Those areas, very mm-hmm. dangerous. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of diversity. In uh, in Western Kandahar or the the Argandab River Valley, there's some places that might be like there's some places north of the river, like uh, kind of in the Argandab district that are actually extremely forested, which is kind of odd. But for the most part, it's all just grape rows and grape huts and backwards people. And uh, I probably shouldn't say that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but but the, it's the same people in the same villages and the mud huts and the grape rows and the irrigation canals. I mean, going all the way out to Helmand, it's pretty much the same. It really is, yeah. Hmm. What did you think about working in Helmand versus working in like in the Argandab Valley? I mean, because I've flown over both and they they're kind of similar, but they also seem like they're a little bit different. Helmand is a hell place, like a hellhole, what they say. <laughs> it's It was the most dangerous place on the face of earth. Like, I remember uh, when they put me there first, I was so scared. And uh, That's right. That was your first assignment. Yes. Um, and at nighttime, we were in a, um, like, um, all black out mm-hmm. um, base. So when we used to, you know, get out to go do things around the base and it was all black, pitch black. And I used to get so scared. <clears throat> and also going to different villages in, in Helmand, even the vibe of it would make you feel scared. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you get the vibe in your stomach and you feel like sick, kind of. And dealing with people as well was kind of hard because Helmand people were very hard to crack. Uh, mm. They were all poppy dealers. Uh, they're pro-Taliban. Uh, men, women, children. Uh, they did not like us. Um, they were not open to speak to us, even the women. Uh, they were just straight up gangster. <laughs> <laughs> straight up gangster helmet. Helmet folk. <laughs> yes so that was the yeah that i think that's the most dangerous place that i've ever been to was hellman in different areas of hellman and do you remember uh, like the, the moment when you're like i might have 
bitten off more than I really wanted. I might might be a little over my head. Like, was there ever a moment you're like you kind of regretted signing up? Yes, and yes, yes. Um, especially when I landed first in Hillman. Mm. Uh, for at least a couple of months, I was very scared. And I was like, what did I just do? Because my best friend pr- promised me that she was, she will go with me. And she backed out at the last minute. No. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no. man. It's like, Did don't worry, dirty? bro. I'll sign up for the army with you. It's like, <laughs> oh, man. I just like, I started dating this girl. And like, you fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she totally said, okay, she'll go with me and everything. And then at the last minute, while the ticket was booked to go to Baltimore, she said she can't. She's too scared. Uh, I mean, that's valid. (laughs) 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 I mean, it sucks she left you high and dry, but... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But as you kind of like got into the pace of the job and everything, like, I mean, what was it about the job that kind of... Because you stayed with it for quite a few years, right? Yes. Um... After my first deployment, I came home. I kind of got sick to be home. I wanted to go back and try to keep on making a difference and be around those people, be around villagers, be, you know, be there. Um, I missed it. I'm pretty sure you guys feel the same way when you came first home, when you came home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. For at least a year or so. It's, it's pretty common for guys to, common. to really yeah. want to go back. Unfortunately for us, we usually don't have the opportunity to. Uh, you can't just sign up to go back. <laughs> yeah. Usually. Yeah. So what you did your family think when you came back and then said you wanted to go back again? Um, they uh, were kind of shocked. Um, they're still shocked that I, what, I did what I did. Yeah, they uh, they didn't they didn't think I would have it in me. Um but but me returning as this very strong person um and experiencing what I experienced and sometimes when I tell them stories here and there, I really don't open up a lot. But when I like drop a, a story here and there, they kind of they kind of just, you know, are quiet. They don't say anything to my face, but uh, I'm pretty sure they think that, you know, the war did a number on me. <laughs> it did a number on all of us, if we're being completely honest. Um, and then it's not, I don't, I don't find that unusual at all that you would have come home a slightly different person than you left, uh, especially that first rotation. And I'm sure that they saw it because I know my, my family saw it. Um, were they, were they pretty supportive at, at the, when you initially decided to go the first time? No, well, I mean, they were okay, but like, they were kind of scared for me. But. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's logical. Um, but I think it's pretty cool that, especially, you know, you hear a lot of stories and this is obviously, you know, stereotype to a degree of, of how, uh, controlling Afghan parents can be. Uh, and I think it's very, very cool that that was something that they supported you in doing. Yes, um, they really did, especially my mother. Um, she's very supportive. Um, she still is. My dad is too, and that's what I like about my family because they're so educated. Mm-hmm. 
education is the, you know is the key for understanding and they didn't understand yeah that's that's really cool about that was the kind of the dynamic and uh when you went so did you go back two times or you went back a total of two times or is it a total of three times total of two times total of two times okay so yeah. the second one you said was the kandahar deployment um, right. What was it like going back after you had been gone for, you know, I guess about a year or so? Um, to be honest with you, I, I really enjoyed it because at that time I was already in, uh, I had all the experiences that I needed. I had all the training that I needed working for the first time. The second time was just like a piece of cake and I was so brave. The second time I was just so brave. Like I didn't care. Uh -huh. As I told you the story, like we were getting shot at, I'm just uh, sitting there and reading book. Like <laughs> I got so brave that I uh, enjoyed working, um, uh, being in a war zone and appreciating uh, every single thing uh, that was America was offering while I was here. Um, and I'm still appreciative of everything that America is offering us uh, because Afghans don't have that. Um, you know, most people don't have that. And um, yeah, it was fun <laughs> while it lasted. <laughs> were, there, were there any like specific experiences in either of the two deployments that kind of stand out to you? Uh, with the both in, uh, deployments, uh, the, my first person that I saw was uh, blown up by an ID. There were two police, local police um, in cop records. I'm not sure if you remember in um, Herat, Copper Kids. It was a small uh, operation base, fire operation base. Um, so their their uh, truck were uh, that came, you know, uh, uh, that was blown up, and the guy lost his leg, his feet, both feet, one of them, and the other one just lost a leg and an and arm, and. The guy that lost both his feet was just screaming, saying that "just kill me right now." I don't want to. I don't want to be alive. So that was my first incident that I saw someone being in so much pain and losing a limb, two limbs actually, uh, and screaming to be to be dead. It's better to be dead than to alive. That's still with me, and his face and his voice still with me. Um, the second deployment was when six or seven people uh, from a village, uh, just civilian village, uh, they uh, they stepped on an ID that was made uh, in a in a tire of a big truck. So it was like a couple kids and then two or three male. Um, they brought them to us and they were really messed up like in a, to the point that they had only torsos left and they were alive um, but after a couple of days of course they passed away all of them together um, they uh, evacuated them to Kandahar hospital and after that a um, couple of days after we heard that they all passed away um, so those two, yeah, well, well the first uh, IED incident that I remember and the one with the seven people that uh, died all together. So, yeah. And then um, 
I mean, I've, when when I was out there, I would see people, you know, getting blown up by in front of me by an ID. My last one was uh, this guy who was ALP and was just gotten married like a week ago, I think, at the time when we went there. And uh, he stepped on a booby trap uh, at the front door. He tried to uh, enter and see who's at this, you know, mud hut, and there was nobody. And as soon as uh, the commander yelled at him not to go in there, and he he went there, and he stepped on the uh, ID uh, uh, at the um, the door, and he got blown up, and then he was in two pieces. Um, so that was one of the hardest ones to, um, just because he just got married, he was so happy. Uh, when before before we went for a mission, um, he was just talking about his bride and how happy he is and how his bride is so beautiful and they were so much in love and he was just like he was telling me all these things as a friend, like kind of a friend friendly talk, and I would just see happiness in his. Uh, eyes and after a couple hours I see him uh, getting killed I mean that's a you know pretty powerful anecdote I mean was it common for you to 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 speak extensively with the ALP and ANA that you went out with I mean what was what was your relationship like with them um, so when we were in the base uh, or FOB uh, we would not uh, I would not uh, hang out with them because you know it's the difference mental the different mentality and they might expect something from me and you know and all that or sometimes they're just they just kill you shoot you just for no reason because you're a woman <laughs> but when we uh, used to get uh, like for example we're going for a mission today we're waiting we're getting briefed and we're waiting and they're waiting as well so we're together waiting for a helicopter or something and we're talking just you know exchanging words and talking um that's when uh i got to know them a little bit okay gotcha so kind of when the americans were around and everything was kind of more controlled uh which i don't blame you i would you wouldn't have caught me walking over to the the ana side of our base by myself either um just there's there's strength in numbers They're very predictable. You could not tell. Yes. Yeah. Well, especially that time. I mean, like you mentioned, the green on blue, it was happening left and right. And, you know, PFC Grace doesn't know if he just offended some dude on the, you know, IED training course last week. I don't, I'm not, I'm not culturally, uh, my cultural IQ on uh, Afghan culture isn't high enough for me to even recognize whether I've offended somebody. Um, So it's probably not in my best interest to be wandering around uh, by myself. So, I don't blame you. Did you guys get to go to their, um, when they used to cook lamb or something and invite us? Did you guys used to go like and have the, a feast? Once, but they came to us. They they came and they, they cooked the a traditional Afghan meal in our dining facility. Um, there were a few times some people got to go over to like some of the, uh, the smaller bases or some of the villages and they'd cook for them. Uh, but I never got to do that. I don't know if you did, Luke. No. No, I never did. I forgot that they came and cooked for us one time, though. It slipped my mind. 
Because I feel like typically, because because of the nature of being in, the, in an infantry unit, if there was things like that going on, it was like the the command, you know, it was like the commander and the higher enlisted and stuff like that. So us average Joes didn't get a chance to partake as often. Or if we did go, it was to pull security. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, we were... We we weren't we weren't anything special. That's yeah. for sure. You guys are very special. What you guys did uh, over there is not easy for someone to do. Appreciate oh, that. I appreciate that. Um, um, speaking of where we were at, we were down in Panjway, and this is the Panjway podcast. So I know you said you you had swung by Spearman Garden that area, but you you know your experience in Kandahar was it always concentrated down in like Zari and Panjway in that area? Like what were you doing down in there? Yes. Um, I was in Panjway for, I think, three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they grabbed me from CAF, they took me to Panjway. And I had to stay there for three days for my team to come pick me up. And I stayed in Panjway for three days. I like you guys' uh, chow hall, by the way. You guys had everything in there. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and you guys had a cook as well. I think he was Afghan. Yeah, we usually we, we yeah we had a couple Afghan cooks and we had like one American cook that supervised poorly, but we love <laughs> we, we love you, Hoxie. <laughs> Even if you did try to shoot me once, I'm never gonna let you forget it. No way he did. Hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah, he uh, he got a little turned around in a firefight, and I was on top of a great putt. And uh, we were shooting at the bad guys, but I think maybe he got confused about which direction the bad guys were because he turned his 50 cal towards us, uh, and it was an unpleasant experience. It was short-lived, <laughs> but I didn't appreciate being shot at by our cook with a 50 cal. So <laughs> I'm glad you're okay. <laughs> you made it to live. <laughs> yeah, that would have been an embarrassing way to go out. Just that saying, a bad way to go. That's, yeah, that's, that's not. <laughs> It's not, it's not what I want. That's not what I want the army to tell my family. It's like, oh yeah, the cook shot him. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. if, the cook, if the cook's gonna kill me, do it on like you know stir fry Friday or something like that. Don't yeah, do it exactly. Cow. You know, stomach bug, shit yourself to death. <laughs> so on the way from Panjwe, going back to my uh, base with my team. I lost one of my bags, the military bags, the duffel mm. bag, with oh, all no. my stuff in it. Everything wasn't there. So the, yeah, the, the infantry team that was uh, assigned with us, they just put my bag in there and didn't tie it as good. <laughs> so I lost my bag. <laughs> good thing that all my documents and stuff was in my other bag. And I Ooh. thought, oh my God, I lost my passport and everything. Um. But luckily, all my documents was in a different bag. That's a, that so, is, that yeah. is such a typical infantry mistake to make, like yeah. not, tying <laughs> not tying a backpack down the- in the back of a truck or something. Yeah. Speaking as somebody who did that once. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't you? <laughs> no, it was not me because it was my stuff that got run over. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a good story. Actually, that was a good story, except it actually technically wasn't my fault. Uh I did secure it. However, somebody else put something in after me. And then Kobos, the guy driving the truck behind us, sees my bag fall out the back of the truck. He's like, oh, I'm just going to drive over it. And just <laughs> fucking drove over my bag. And the best part is he got in more trouble for driving over it than I did for not securing it properly. <laughs> oh, but 
that's a very it's a very very infantry private thing to do to just toss a bag in the back and it you know falls out yeah. halfway down the road. Mm-hmm. We we do have the lowest IQ for entry for a reason. <laughs> uh, not that bad. Not that bad. You're just being modest. No, no, it's it's real. Like you, you can the the dumbest job in the military is the infantry. The smartest job is also the infantry, but you know when the the gates are set on the extreme wide end, you get quite the range of intelligence. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes really intelligent people could do really stupid things too. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, um, so that that was your one time in Panjway. Did you spend? And you said you mentioned you spent some time up in Pasab and Zari too, right? Yes, uh, Zari, uh, the Zari district we went to when uh, they closed already closed down, and we heard that the Taliban were taking over again. So we went again. Great. Hmm. To see what was going on, and uh, mm-hmm. and what, what what was that like? Uh, we stayed uh, at the uh, at the Zari for a week. Okay. And. Uh, they had this uh, new uh, clinic, I think. It was built, new clinic. I don't know if you guys saw that. A big uh, building from Afghan government. <clears throat> and uh, w- women and children was coming for uh, treatment. And okay. uh, uh, we went there as well. And we were just there to, to feel the environment. Sure. But at that point, it was too late because... Taliban was already surrounding the area, and, and we kind of left. Right. Was this with the SF teams? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then you also spent a little bit of time out in Maiwan too with the SF teams. Yes, Maiwan, um, Jare, um, Dekobad. Okay. Um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, there's another one that we just stopped by from Panjwe while going to my one. It was just a fueling up place, not like a base or anything. Oh, okay, I gotcha. I don't know, guys, if you guys remember the name of the place, but I forgot. I don't. There's, I know there was up there. There was Fob Wilson. There was Pasab. Um, I don't. I'm not super familiar with the the Zari AO. Uh, you know, for for us, you know, we lived our entire nine months in this itty bitty little bubble uh, down at Spurwangar, so we didn't get to venture out too much. But I could see Pasab from the top of the hill. That's how I knew it was there. Pasab was really f- weird uh, because us, like the special forces team, were like in this separate, like inside of Sahab and the, the whole uh, base. So we had for Chow, we would have to get out and go outside and eat with, the, you know, uh, uh, with just, you know, infantry uh, team. And there were times that we could not go to the gym by ourselves uh, as women or to the chow hall by ourselves because every time the a uh, would pass by us with their trucks or whatever, they used to take pictures of us or say things or, you know. Um, so there were times that we couldn't go outside of our, our hub uh, at Pasab. Um, without like an American escort? Yes, without an American, with someone with a gun, because uh, I think some people got uh, assaulted as well. Uh, people with the, without a gun, men. 
you know, now that you mention that, I remember hearing, and maybe this, I remember this is the first or second deployment. Might have been a second deployment. It was a second deployment. Somebody got kidnapped. An American soldier got kidnapped by a uh, like a, an ANA soldier, and like raped. I I do remember. Yeah, I remember. I remember more of the details. But like, like just one dude. Like, and dude with a gun. So. Yes, that would yeah. happen a lot in Pasov. Whoo, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, crazy stuff. And you like, you walk around thinking you're invincible, and like you turn a corner, and I guess you're just not. That's just, and <laughs> in, in in a place where you're supposed to feel safe and protected, which is um, kind of kind of bullshit, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, that's that stuff like that could happen, but um, so I mean, you you did your your two tours in uh in Afghanistan came back you know presumed uh, a normal life and then and kind of describe to us best you can what it was kind of like to watch the last couple of years happen well how, how was that for you personally without going into too much detail because obviously we don't want to um expose anything but uh like my personal life after war no just coming like, home what, what was it like seeing what was happening in afghanistan as we drew down our forces and the taliban started to kind of start taking things back over um i think at first i was a denial i was like no it's not happening it's not happening how could it happen like this is too it's you know america fought, fought for so long they're not gonna let it go and then came the you know the time that they withdrew and we saw things that happened at the airport. People died at the airport and um, it was very sad. People like hanging from the air- airplane. That was very sad and shocking. Um, it was very shocking and then sad and then confusing. Um, it- it's just, you know... It's something that you can never, ever uh, expect, especially if you have been there, you know, fought, have seen Americans died, American soldiers died, or, you know, civilians died, and to just America, to just withdraw just like that and leave, that was very uh, unbelievable at first, and then sad, and till today, it's kind of uh, like a... I feel blue about it. Like the whole situation just went down so bad and different things, things took a turn in a very different direction. And I'm sure all um, soldiers that have served in war in Afghanistan, they feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like in one of the things that we've always, like I said earlier, we've always driven home is like, there's, there's a lot of good to come of our experiences there like in spite of how it's turned out. It's like for you, like what's been a really good experience or good takeaway from your time in Afghanistan that you'll kind of cherish and you'll hold on to? Um, My coworkers that I worked with um, and the relationships that I built with my coworkers, um, of course, military. uh, And the people that uh, we helped um, medically or in any way or shape or form, financially, um, their smiles, um, their happiness, seeing the, the, their expressions, um, 
that will always stay in my heart. And the places that I went to, and there are some times that I listen to these songs that I used to listen to when we used to, you know, drive back from um, a mission or something. And I remember all those scenes, like remembering those scenes that, okay, yeah, I was in Afghanistan. I was in these places that I would never have thought in my whole life I would go. And um, I think that's so beautiful for me, uh, especially because my motherland and I saw places that even probably my grandfather have never seen those places. Um, those and the relationships that I built with people I work with and experience. The experience is the most uh, beautiful part of it is experience. The good, the bad. Um, yeah. It's just, it was just beautiful experiences. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't even thought about that. Like that's your, you know, cause you left at such a young age, like that's your home country that that's where your roots are and your family's from. So to be able to go and see so much of it had to have been just incredibly rewarding and to have that experience. Cause, and you know, in a reality, your, your chances of uh, going would have been <laughs> slim to none outside of war, sadly. Uh, but it's cool that you got to reconnect with that part of yourself, you know, um, and contribute and do your part, which is, which is pretty awesome. Um, so Sarah, I think the way we, we end these things is we always kind of give you the, the platform or the stage. If there's something we didn't, you know, talk about or something that maybe you really want to highlight or shine a light on, uh, the floor is yours. You know, is there anything, final thoughts you have for everybody? Um, I would like to thank everyone, every single person who have served, um, in the military or civilians who served in Afghanistan or any, uh, country that have served, it's not easy to go and uh, fight in a different country, especially that country is not your homeland uh, and you don't understand the language. So thanks to all of uh, the military uh, members, people who've lost their lives, um, may uh, their souls rest in peace. And um, for their families, all I could do is pray. Um, and um, yeah, how about you guys? What did you guys get from going there and, and being there? Like, what was your experience like? How do you feel, both of you? <laughs> Luke, I'll let you go first. Um, well... For me, it's just despite, like like you said earlier, despite all the the bad, you know, there's so much good that comes with it, and it will it will always be a, tr a kind of transformative experience in that, you know, I got to go and experience something that I, you never would have gotten to do in a thousand years in in the majority of the world, um, and to come away with like a really deep appreciation for the insight and wisdom that go that going to war provides and to go somewhere like afghanistan like you know i, I, I deployed to iraq too and I, iraq just felt different you know i didn't connect to iraq but i connected to afghanistan um and so it was it was it'll, it'll be an infinitely rewarding experience throughout my life and i look forward to seeing the ways that my time my brief time spent there uh continues to reveal the ways that it's impacted me in, in a positive and and good way for sure that's good to hear. And I, I'd say for me, I mean, I wouldn't be the person that I am right now without Afghanistan. Um, you know, Luke kind of nailed it on the head. It's a transformative or if it, or it was a formative experience. It's, you know, mm -hmm. something that my, my very young male brain at 25 years old experienced in a key stage of my life. Um, 
you know, and I got to go twice. So I got, I got to kind of form a very, I don't want to say bond, um, but an attachment to the landscape. Um, I wish I could say that I had been able to form an attachment to the people, but I think kind of as a result of the way that we wage war, um, that was never really an option for me in the jobs that I had. There were definitely people that did, like some of the SF guys really got to know the the locals a lot more than we did, but um, I definitely got a, a, an attachment to the landscape, to the to the mountains, to the vast deserts, to just the, the uniqueness of it. Um, and then, you know, the, the real takeaway for me was just a, a deep sorrow for the people. Even though I wasn't able to, con- to connect with them, like on a person-to-person level, I, you can absolutely empathize uh, with a group of people and to understand the kind of the dead end that they're running up against. Um, I always keep coming back to this idea that nobody is coming for the Pashto people. Even if the NRF take back Kabul or they take back Mazari Sharif or they take back Panjir, they're not coming to Kandahar. They're not going to Helmand. They're not going to save those little girls. Um, you know, the only people in history that have actually given enough of a shit about the Pashto people to build them schools and to, you know, try and give them the opportunity to rise above their situation has been us, has been NATO, it's been the UN. You know, the Russians didn't give a shit when they went in there. They were just blowing everything up in sight. Um, And since we've basically said we're not doing this anymore, I feel great sorrow for the people of Afghanistan because... At this point, if they don't do it for themselves, I don't think anybody's ever going to help them for decades. That's very true. And uh, and that's how you guys decided to make this podcast, coming back and trying to relive kind of the experience and hear from people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we um, it's been a journey of discovery in a lot of ways, and it's actually it's for me personally because I. When I got out of the military, I, I just kind of left it all behind. You know, I, I severed my ties and I didn't really talk to people. And I just moved on from my life into different, you know, into school and everything like that. But to reconnect with that experience um, through the podcast is definitely, it's been a journey of discovery, realizing how much it impacted me uh, yeah. and how much, it, how much of an important role it played into who I am now. It's been, it's been very rewarding. I get to talk to people like you. You know, I mean, in a million years, we would have never <laughs> been able in the real, you know, out here in the real world, bouncing around, we never would have been able to connect. So it's been cool to talk with people like yourself. Yeah. And and I think it's kind of part of capturing your history. Yeah. Um, You know, it, there's nothing really special about what we did. We were a very small piece in a very large machine. Um, But it's still at the end of the day, you know, our little tiny contribution mattered to us. So I think this this journey of being able to document what we went through or what it was like to be in Panjway and Kandahar and um while it's still fresh enough for us to be able to offer something uh qualitative uh to the discussion. In that way, you know, fifty years from now, like our grandkids can look at it, um, or listen to it and kinda understand what we went through. I mean, I always think what would it have been like if the veterans of World War Two could have done a podcast in the late nineteen fifties about what the war was like with that perfect amount of time to reflect 
uh, and mature and to be able to actually understand what you went through. So um, I've definitely appreciated it for that. Just that that narrow window of opportunity to talk about it with some humility and uh, some distance. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure people who are listening, they do appreciate it uh, because most people have no idea what you guys been through uh, in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Um, so um, it's a very good platform for them to understand uh, the war better. Yes, yeah. definitely yeah. part of our goal here, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, if we haven't mentioned it before, this is actually our final guest interview episode of the Panjway podcast, um, which is definitely very bittersweet um, because next week will be kind of our finale when we kind of wrap everything up and t- tie it all together. But uh, personally, I'm very glad that you, Sarah, are our final guest um, because I think it's most fitting that the, the, the final word from a guest on our show is is a child of Afghanistan. Um, someone who was born there, who got to see it through, you know, adult eyes. Um, I'm very appreciative that you agreed to come on and talk to us. I know it was something you were very nervous about and I just wanted to make sure I said thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You guys our, are awesome. It's our pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of season three of the Panjway podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.